0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 to 20 this morning. And we're beginning now to get into the main portion of the Sermon on the Mount. As most of you know, except for maybe some of the visitors, we've been studying Jesus' first sermon recorded in Matthew. And so far in Matthew, we've met Jesus through the genealogy, the, the story his birth or, or really the story of his conception. And we've seen a, a brief snapshot of his remarkable ministry in Galilee. And before that we saw him overcome temptation in the wilderness. He overcame Satan. And the focus of the gospel so far has been that Jesus is the King. He's the promised Messiah King. One who would overcome Satan and save his people from their sins. We've seen through the narrative at the beginning that jesus is both god and man we've seen that jesus is the fulfillment of scripture and that, that he's the one that the prophets prophesied about and that all scripture looked forward to him and then after matthew told us so much about who jesus is and how great he is and how great he would be He introduces introduces Jesus to us more personally and more directly by giving us Jesus' words in this amazing sermon. Here is the king in his own words. And we've been studying the proclamation of the king. The message, the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen, has focused on who belongs to the kingdom of the king. Who are the citizens of the of Jesus's kingdom. This is the same as asking who is a true Christian or who is a true believer or who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Another way to ask that same question would be to ask who is blessed because we've seen in these eight statements at the beginning of the sermon in verses 3 to verses 10 we've seen these eight Blessed are statements in the introduction to this sermon. And what we've seen is that you are blessed, basically if you are born again. Now Jesus doesn't use that terminology, born again, but the the idea is here. The idea is that Jesus has shown us is that the the true Christian is one who is transformed. There's an internal transformation that changes a true disciple and that is the same as the new birth or regeneration. A disciple is different than the world. Uh, A disciple is one that is so different from the world that they are even persecuted by the world. And so in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then we saw that that we are the salt, of the earth we are the salt of the earth verse 13 and what that meant is that we are unique that we are different we are, we have peculiar properties as a disciple of jesus christ and if we don't have those particular properties we are like unsalty salt we're the light of the world verse 14 and our job is to be what we are in this world what jesus has made us to be through the new birth we are light and we expose darkness and we shine for the glory of God we're to be a people set apart for God God is our father we are his children we've been made like him in regeneration and therefore we show his greatness as we live out what he has made us to be and that's where we left off last week in verse 16 In the same way, in the the same way as salt is salt, and light is light, and light is designed to shine, in the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now the question that Jesus' introduction brings to our minds is this, what good works should we do to glorify God? How do we live out what we are in Christ? Or how do we function as salt and light in the world? And the whole rest of this sermon really answers those questions. The whole rest of this sermon answers this question: But what good work should we do to glorify God? And from chapter 5, verse 17, until chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is going to show us the works that we are to do in the... And that these works are to be done in obedience to scripture. So if we want to glorify God with our lives, we must obey God's holy word. And another word for these good works that we're going to see throughout this sermon here going forward in the main body of the sermon now is this word righteousness. We've seen already that we are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6 of chapter 5. We are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, verse 10. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, or before other people, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Or Matthew 6 and verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added. And so the main body of this sermon is about the righteousness that glorifies god and it shows us what that righteousness is and this righteousness is basically wrapped up in obedience to god's word and specifically in view here is the old testament scriptures now of course when jesus spoke these words there were no new testament scriptures yet and so let's go ahead and, and just read passage, starting at verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a god will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever now notice in verse 17 jesus says there is the law and the prophets and this is the way they speak about really what we now call the old testament the law and the prophets is really the entire old testament again there was no new testament yet at this point and to jesus and the disciples it wasn't the old testament it was simply scripture it was simply scripture and the jews or the israelites of jesus day divided the scripture into three parts. They had the Torah, the Law, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, that was called the Law or the Torah. There was the Prophets and the Nabim, the, the, the Prophets, Prophets Nabim is, um, and that was divided into two sections. The, the Prophets had the, what they called the former Prophets, which was the, really what we call the historical writings, from Joshua to Second Kings. That was the, what the Jews called the former prophets. And then there's the, the latter prophets, which is what we typically think of as the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12, what we call the 12 minor prophets, the, they probably wouldn't like to be Scripture into the Torah, the Prophets We could maybe kind of that, therefore, this is the close of the body, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so Jesus again summarizes the Old Testament under this sentence of doing whatever you wish others to do to you, you do to them, this is the law and the prophets. And in that verse, Jesus then brings the main body of the sermon to a close. Verses 13 to 27 of chapter 7 are the conclusion of the sermon. And so Jesus starts then the main body of this sermon with the law and the prophets, and he ends with the law and the prophets. And everything in between, you know, between those two verses, is about the righteousness that we are to live out in obedience to the law. Now as Jesus calls us in verse 12 of chapter 5, He calls us to this surpassing righteousness or this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a, a surpassing righteousness. He wants us to know that as He is calling us to this surpassing righteousness, He is not abandoning the scripture. What He is doing is entirely in line with the scriptures. Jesus wants us to know that he's not starting a new religion, he's fulfilling what was already there in the Old Testament. He's not throwing off the authority of scripture and doing something new, he's bringing the Old Testament into the next phase, if if we can say it that way, He's he's bringing the Old Testament into the next phase by fulfilling what it pointed to. Jesus is building his ministry on the Old Testament. He doesn't tear it down. and start entirely new. He builds on the foundation of what is already established. And this is important for us because what this passage is going to do for us is it's going to show us our attitude toward the Old Testament and what our attitude should be towards the Old Testament. You see, our righteousness or our good works that glorify God, they come from Obedience to the commandments of Scripture, but we also need to recognize that Jesus fulfilled much of what is in the law and the prophets. And so our obedience and our righteousness comes from obedience to the commandments of Scripture, and yet we recognize that Jesus has fulfilled much of what is in the law and the prophets. And so as we go through this, we're going to do so under four hands. About Scripture and the Old Testament to prepare you to glorify God. Now, if you've got your little outline, you don't have to write that down. If you're online, that's maybe a little bit to write down. But four statements about Scripture and the Old Testament to prepare you to glorify God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He makes four statements here, one in each of our verses, and each one builds upon the previous one. And some of it in verse 20 is that this view of the Law and the Scripture should lead us to a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The first three verses, verses 17, 18, and 19 kind of set the foundation for everything that Jesus says about righteousness in this message. These these first three verses especially are really the foundation of all the rest that we're going to see as we go through this. And the first statement, in verse 17, I summarize it like this. Number 1, the Old Testament has not been abolished by Jesus, He came to fulfill it. The Old Testament has not been abolished by Jesus, He came to fulfill it. Again in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we already saw that the Law and the Proverbs there mean Scripture, including the Psalms and the Proverbs and the other writings. This is really all of the Scripture that was existent at that time. And Jesus commands His disciples not to think that He came to abolish the Scriptures. Now this is a strong command. Jesus forbids us the very thought that He came to abolish the Scriptures. Don't even think that, he says. Don't even think that. Don't let the thought enter your mind. Now that word there, abolish, is a really strong word. It, it literally means to destroy, to demolish, to dismantle. It was used for the demolitions of, of, of buildings where a building would be destroyed. And figuratively, it means to put something to an end, to cause it to no longer be enforced or to end its validity. And so it's translated to abolish, to annul, to make invalid, or to do away with. Jesus says, don't even think that I came to abolish, annul, make invalid, or do away with the law of the prophets. And then he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, don't think it. And then he says, I have not come to abolish. He denies having come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. And Jesus will go on to tell us in verse 18 that the Law and the Prophets will continue and not not one iota, not one God will pass from the Law until all is accomplished. In verse 19 he says that even the least of these commandments must be done and taught. Even the least of these commandments must be done. They, They must not be relaxed and they must be taught to others. And so it seems, at least initially here, I'm, I'm kind of a surface reading that Jesus is saying that the, the disciples need to keep the Mosaic Law. Now, if we believe that Jesus is saying that we're still under the Mosaic Law, then we have some big problems. I, I don't even know if you would be aware of that, but for starters, if Jesus is teaching that his disciples are ob- obligated to teach and obey the law, the Mosaic Then we have a situation where the apostles, including Matthew himself who wrote this book, disagree with Jesus. In fact, in Acts 15, the the question arose whether the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, do the Gentile believers need to keep the Old Testament Mosaic Law? And the apostles, and Matthew was there, said no. Matthew, Acts 51, and then actually let's just go ahead and turn to the book of Acts and look at this in Acts 15. You see, previously, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship Yahweh, you wanted to worship the God of Scripture, you would have to be circumcised and really become a Jew and live like a Jew and put yourself under the law of the Jews. And so when the salvation of the Gospel came to the Gentiles in the New Testament era, and this question arose about what is the relationship of the believer to the Mosaic law. And so in Acts 15 verse 1, some of the men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then in verse 5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul is preaching the Gospel in Antioch, and, and people start to come and say, look, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved unless you keep the law of Moses. You can't be saved, and and so they, they called this council. You know, as the Jerusalem Council in and, and Acts fifteen, and you can read really, you can read Acts fifteen another time on your own time. But in effect, everyone agrees. The apostles, Paul, uh, including Matthew, is there. He is there. Everyone agrees. Even the whole church and the elders of the Jerusalem church—they agree that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, and they don't need to be ordered to keep the law of Moses. And that's really the universal declaration of the entire New Testament. The New Testament declares that that we, the Christians, are not under obligation to the law of Moses. We're not under obligation to keep the law. Now, I want to show you this, and then we're going to come back and we're going to try to harden. What Jesus says in our passage. And, and, and so let's go and let's look at what Paul says in the book of Romans, and we'll, we'll start at Romans chapter 10, and I'll start reading in verse 2, but Romans 10 4 is really important in this. So Romans chapter 10, Paul says, for I bear them witness. And the, the question is, who is them? And I bear witness that they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The Jews, Paul says, they didn't understand God's righteousness, and in their zeal, they tried to build their own righteousness. And in doing that, that and in trying to establish their own righteousness, They did not submit to God's righteousness in the Gospel. In other words, they did not come to Christ for righteousness. And then look at verse 4. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. That word there, end, means the goal or the fulfillment. Our righteousness comes from Christ, and not from trying to keep the law. The law pointed forward to Christ, and now that Christ has come, he has brought the law to an end. That's what Paul's saying there. He has brought the law to an end. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, let's look back. Look at Romans chapter six and verse 14. Paul says therefore, sin shall, sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the under law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. Then in verse fifteen, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And Paul answers, by no means. We are we are not lawless, but we are not under she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so there's this this illustration of marriage that Paul gives here. He says the law is binding as long as someone is alive. And in this marriage covenant, when we make a a marriage covenant, it's until death do us part. And this is Paul's illustration that we are under the law as long as we are alive. And then in verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so Paul says, just like Illustration in verse 3, where this married lady's husband dies, and now she's free to marry another man in the same way, likewise, therefore, my brothers, you also have died to the law so that you may belong to another, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've died to the law so that we can be married to Christ. And Paul says this new relationship with Christ will make us fruitful in order that we may bear fruit for God. And he basically repeats himself in verse 6, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Or again, in Romans 8, verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law, of sin and death. The the Spirit of God, this new relationship with God and Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so Paul says that the law has ended. We are not under it. He says we are dead to it. He says we are released from it. It used to hold us captive. It no longer does. We are free from the law. And this is really what Paul says everywhere in all of his epistles. Let's, let's look at Galatians now. Galatians really you can also read the whole book of Galatians to show this. I just want to pick up a couple verses for you. Galatians 2 and verse 19, first of all. Galatians 2, 19. Paul says, therefore, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now, that's an interesting way that he says that. He says, through the law. And it's like it's like if Paul realizes what the law's intent was. That the, there's a, a part of the law that spoke about a day when you would be released from the law. So he says, through the law, another, in other words, kind of the idea is lawfully, I've been free from the law, and, and I died to the law so that I might live to God. Look at Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. 3.23, now, before faith came, we were helped until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, he says we are no longer under a guardian. And so the idea is that since Christ has come, we're no longer under this guardian of the law. We've been released from this imprisonment. Or Galatians 5 and verse 18. Now, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Another verse that's important here is back in First Corinthians chapter 9. So go with me to First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, Paul here, and remember, Paul is an Israelite, Paul is a Jewish person who was born under the law as as, a, as an Israelite would have been trying to keep the law for most of his life, but now he says, not being myself under the law. Right in the middle of verse twenty. So not being myself under the law. He recognizes that he has now been freed from the law, and yet he acts like he's one under the law in order to win those and to relate to those who are under the law. But then he speaks of his ministry to those outside of the law, in other words, his ministry to Gentiles, and he says that he's not outside the law of God. Instead, he says he's under the law of Christ. And the idea here is that Paul says, I'm not lawless. I I don't live in in total unrighteousness. It's not as though I don't have a sense of my obligation and responsibility to God. I just recognize that I'm not so we could ask ourselves then, well, what is the law of God, or what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is only mentioned here, and directly only mentioned again in Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2 says this, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul says we're not under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean we're lawless, we are under this law of Christ. Now Galatians, let's go back to Galatians chapter 5, and if you look at verse 18 there, Galatians 5, 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, he says you are not under the Law. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the Law. In verse 22 He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then He says this, against such things there is no the Law. And so the Law of Christ seems to be closely connected to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 13 Paul says, "'For you were called to freedom, brothers.'" And we say, well, freedom from what? Well, in verse 11 of Galatians 5, freedom from circumcision, freedom from the Mosaic law. So, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for lawlessness. Instead, use your freedom and, and use it to serve one another in love. But through love, serve one another. And then in verse 14, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. That's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, right? That the the law is fulfilled, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in in serving one another, in loving one another. Or let's just see how Jesus said that again in Matthew 7 and verse 12. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, and the idea then is that love fulfills the law. This is in Romans thirteen verse eight. Very, very similar here. He says, Paul says, "Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word." You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so as we think about the law of Christ and what it is, it seems to be love that is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. This is it. Jesus, as He talks about His commandment, He says in verse uh, 34 of John 13, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or John 15, and verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This seems to be the law of Christ, that we love one another as Christ has loved us or first john 3 verse 23 this is his commandment this is the commandment of jesus christ that we believe in the name of his son jesus christ and love one another just as he has commanded us and so the law of christ it seems to me is loving god and loving others by the power of the holy spirit apostle james calls this the perfect law the law of liberty and james James 2a, he calls it the royal law. And so let's go back then to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says again, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now I was going to try to harmonize what Jesus is saying with what Paul has said, and really the, the testimony of the entire New Testament, One of the ways that people do this is by dividing the law into three categories of moral, civil, and ceremonial. They say that Jesus fulfilled the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law, but the moral aspects are still intact. Now the problem with that view is that Scripture nowhere separates the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial departments. Now we can see those three aspects in the law, but it's all intertwined in the law and we can't connect or we can't separate those things because the law is one every jew recognized that the law was one law that you couldn't pick and choose which parts of that law you wanted to obey or disobey for example galatians 5 2 paul picks up on this idea and he says and this is really serious he says If you accept accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. For I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so if you accept circumcision, Paul says, Christ is no advantage of you, and if you're going to get circumcised, if you're going to obey one part of the Mosaic law, then you're under the obligation to obey the entire law, the whole law. Or James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And the point is then that you can't divide the law and pick and choose which parts you're going to obey. If you're going to try to keep the law, you have to obey the entire law. Then the law, according to the Jews, was divided up into 613 commandments. That's 248 commandments. Positive commandments and 365 negative commandments, prohibitions. And so, if you're going to try to keep the law, you've got to keep all 613 of those commandments. And so, that's not the proper way to harmonize this passage. And so, what do we do then? Well, I think the key here is to look at this word I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come, Jesus says, to fulfilled the law. And so Jesus did not abolish the law. He did not destroy the law. He did not throw the law away. He didn't he didn't uh, demolish it so he could build something new. But he did fulfill the law. The law, again, was the, the whole Pentateuch, the whole five books of Moses. And the prophets said, and really everything in the scripture is built on the law. The, the Moses gave the Pentateuch, and then the prophets say, applied the law to the kings and they applied the law to the nations and then, then the, the writings the, the, the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes kind of came along and, and filled in the gaps where the law didn't directly speak to them and they filled in those gaps with wisdom on how to live for God in this world and they took the principles from the law and they applied it to live it. But all of that, the law and the prophets and the writings, all of them looked forward to Jesus Christ. For example, the sacrifices in the Old Testament system pointed forward to Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And the predictions in the Old Testament pointed forward to the fulfillment that would happen in Jesus Christ. And really, all of the details of Scripture looked ahead in some way or another to the coming Messiah. And now that the Messiah has come, those things are fulfilled. And since they're fulfilled in Him, some of those things i understand are no longer necessary and i think that's what paul is, is saying as well for example the book of hebrews teaches that christ made a once for all sacrifice and because of his sacrifice that fulfills the entire old testament sacrificial system and actually removes sin then no other sacrifices are needed Hebrews also teaches that since Christ is a priest forever, we no longer need to have earthly priests. There's been a change in the priesthood. Hebrews then argues that a a new priesthood also means a new covenant, that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant by his blood, which includes a changing into the new law of the new covenant, which is again, the law of Christ, the law of one another. And so the fact that Christ fulfilled the law means that certain of the law's practices are no longer necessary, but that in no way abolishes the law. And you know what, I just, and and, and maybe your mind is just kind of blown right now, I'm not sure where you're at, I've been working really hard trying to understand this this week, but listen, you guys all believe this already. I could speak for most of you, because let me ask you a couple of questions here.
1: When is the last
0: time you made an animal sacrifice? Has <laughs> anybody, uh, are you want to ask? Uh, <laughs> you know, if you did make an animal sacrifice, in the biblical sense, right, I don't hear it's hunting season and all, but if, if, if you made an animal sacrifice in the Levitical sense they would have to be done through a priest and most of those had to be done in Jerusalem in fact to do it in some other place besides Jerusalem was a failure to remove the high places in the land now I'm looking out here and I think most of you are wearing mixed fabrics today right you've got some this is like a polyester cotton stretchy material you've got some of those as well that's a that's a sin according to the Old Testament law I know that most of you eat sausage And uh, that is uh, forbidden. March is against the Old Testament Mosaic law. And did you refrain from working on the seventh day? Well, that's that's Saturday. Uh, You can't change. You can't just arbitrarily change it to a new day. So the law says that the Sabbath is on Saturday. And, And I know that most of you all work on Saturday. the Mosaic Law, but that doesn't mean, and this is important, it doesn't mean that we disregard the Old Testament. And that's what I think Jesus is saying here. The Old Testament is still critical as revelation from God. And so let's continue to just try to understand this, and let's go into the next part here, the next verse. Number two, the authority of the Old Testament continues until all is accomplished. The authority of the Old Testament continues until all is accomplished. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a drop, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word for, at the beginning there, explains further what Jesus just said. Jesus doesn't say the, the law and the prophets in this verse. He just simply says the law but it seems best to understand this, again, as referring to the entire Old Testament. And often the Jews would just talk about the law and they meant by that scripture. So Jesus, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this is a very strong affirmation of the truth that he's about to tell us. Jesus affirms uh, that the, the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. we ever truly there is where we get our word amen from it. It's, it's a, a statement of the truth of the statement. It's, it's like an affirmation of the truth of the statement that he's been making. And he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. The iota is the, the Greek letter I. And that corresponds really to our letter I. They look very, very similar. It's the smallest letter in every alphabet. And most people understand this to represent the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is a yod. And a yod looks like a little comma, except it's placed up a little bit higher than a comma is. And so it's, a, it's a, just this a little tiny stroke of a pen. Now, a dot there, the word translated dot means the little horn. And most people understand this to refer to one of the, the little marks that differentiate one letter from another letter. And so if I made that an O for you, then you, you would see that O, but then if I added a little line, a little hat on top, that would turn that O into the letter A, right? And so it's just that little that little line on the top makes the difference between an O or an A. Or think about a capital F. And all it takes to make it into a capital E is just that little bit of a line. That's what a dot means. That's a keraia in Greek. It's a, or some people call it a serif in English. Just that little tiny line. And in Hebrew, especially, those little tiny marks make a huge difference in distinguishing the letters. There's like all kinds of letters in Hebrew, just that little tiny stroke of a pen makes the difference in the letters. And so Jesus says that not one letter or one part of a letter will pass away. And the idea is that every letter retains its authority. This is the strongest possible negation in Greek. And then when Jesus adds, truly I say to you, in front of this strongest possible negation, this is even a stronger statement. Jesus is saying that there is no possibility of even the least part of Scripture passing away. Now, doesn't mean here, the scribe will never forget to write a letter, or that, that when he's making a copy, then he'll never, ever forget to put one of those little dots that, that differentiates the letters. But what he's saying is that every part of Scripture is going to retain its authority. The authority of Scripture continues until two things happen. Look at verse 18 again. Until heaven and earth pass away, And then, until all is accomplished. Now, heaven and earth are going to pass away when Christ returns to make a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, if you're in Matthew, just turn to Matthew 24 and verse 35. I want to show you a verse here. Matthew 24, 35. Jesus says here, heaven and Away, but my words will not pass away. Wow. Jesus here is saying that his words will last even longer than heaven and earth, which are going to pass away. The the scriptures, the words of God are going to pass away. The words of the Old Testament might pass away when when heaven and earth passes away, but Jesus' words, he says, are on a higher level even than that. Jesus' words are on a are going to last longer, even in the words of the Old Testament Scripture. But but regardless, the Old Testament Scriptures will not pass away, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away. And then He says again, until, literally, until everything comes to be. Until everything is accomplished, or until everything comes to be. And the idea is that the Law and the Prophets they predicted future events, and they will not pass away until everything happens just as they foretold. And these two verses together, these two, two verses, verses 17 and verse 18, tell us that Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures, and they will not be abolished or pass away until everything they foretold comes to pass. Now with that, we can look at our third statement, the third statement that Jesus made to prepare us to glorify God. This is verse 19, and we're going to call this number three. The Old Testament must be obeyed and taught. They must be obeyed and taught. But again, they must be obeyed in light of their fulfillment through Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever best them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The word therefore connects this verse with the previous two, because Jesus fulfilled the law, and because the law is not abolished or passing away until everything is fulfilled, until everything happens, therefore it must be taught and obeyed. Now we're not to teach it and obey it exactly like we would. If Jesus hadn't come, we teach it and obey it again in light of its fulfillment. And I hope I'm making that clear for you. The the Old Testament is still Scripture. The Old Testament is still God's Word. It's still authoritative. It's still Revelation. It's not abolished. It has not passed away. But we can't act as though Jesus hadn't come either, right? We we need to realize that it's been fulfilled and that there has been a change, but that change doesn't change the authority of Scripture. I think if you think about it in light of the book of Hebrews, this might help, because the Hebrews were tempted because of persecution, they were tempted to go back and and deny Christ and go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. And the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that if you go back to these animal sacrifices and to the, the shadow of things and you deny the, the reality of the coming of Christ the Messiah, then then you are really crucifying Christ afresh. You you're you're putting him to an open shame. You're saying that you'd rather have this old shadow that has come off sleep and having the reality of Jesus Christ, and so I hope that's kind of starting to become clearer to you as as we're going through this. But I feel like the best thing that we can do here now is to go back and look at Paul again. Because Paul had so clearly by the Holy Spirit shown us that we're not under the law if we're in Christ, but the question we want to ask then is, how did Paul feel about the Old Testament Scriptures? How did Paul view Scripture? And when we think about it, Paul continually quoted from and relied upon the Scripture. He taught that Jesus was the Christ, and he taught it from the Old Testament. He quoted often from the Old Testament, even from the Old Testament law, and he quoted from it as authoritative. He was not under the law to obey His commandments in every of those 613 commandments, but but he used the law to teach what love for God and what love for neighbor meant. He used the law to show what holiness was and what sin was. You see, God is eternal and He is holy and He does not change and and therefore, we're not so surprised when there's a great deal of overlap between the Mosaic law and the law of Christ because they both came from this holy God. So, even though Paul can say that we're not under the law, he still sees tremendous value in the Old Testament. Much like the psalmist who said, I love thy law. Paul loved the law. But he also recognized the change because of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says things like this in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is breathed up by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, be equipped for every good work. And when he says that all scripture, of course, he, he really means all scripture, but the scripture that existed at that time was primarily just the Old Testament scriptures. Much of the scripture was yet to be written when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, much of the New Testament. And so when he says all scripture is, is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable, he He's looking to the Old Testament and he says, it's not abolished, it's still authoritative, even though it's been fulfilled. In fact, right before 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, Paul says in verse 14, as for you, speaking to Timothy, he says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly and, and believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul tells Timothy, look, learn and remember what you learned from me, including some of those things that I taught you in the New Testament, but also from childhood you have known the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are able to make you wise. But, if, but again, those Scriptures, Paul says, point to Christ, and so they make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Or uh, Romans 15 verse 4, Paul says there, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Yep. Or in First Timothy 10, 11, Paul says, now these things happened to them as an the example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come." And of course in that context, 1 Corinthians 10, the things that happened to them as an example are things that he's drawn from the Old Testament idolatry of Israel in the wilderness as recorded in the Book of Numbers. And so these things happened to them as an example but they were written down, they were inscripturated for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Paul regarded the Scriptures highly and He taught them, and He obeyed them, and He did so with an understanding that they pointed to Jesus Christ. And I, I believe that's the best way to handle and to understand these difficult verses. Now if we go back to Matthew
1: 5 and verse
0: 19, Jesus here takes the least of these commandments as an example. He says in verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven now this is very serious Uh, you know i think what this refers to is our attitude towards scripture and if you have a, a bad attitude if you have a low view of scripture it's a dangerous thing, because if you relax one of the least of these commandments, and again, commandments can simply be a, a, a way, to a synonym to speak about the Word of God, and if you relax what the Word of God teaches, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The idea of relaxing or, or loosening one of these commandments has serious consequences for eternal life. To be called peace in the kingdom of heaven speaks to a loss of reward. And so we don't want to be guilty of this sin. If, this is, if Jesus is telling us that we're under the Old Testament law, then we need to be under the Old Testament law 100%. Now, we need to take what Jesus says very seriously here, because we have that high view of scripture he's saying. But at the same time, we don't want to be guilty of what Paul said in Galatians 5, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And same with the book of Hebrews again, if you go back to the shadow, if you go back to what's been made obsolete, and you don't remember that these things have been fulfilled in Christ, you're crucifying the Son of God afresh, you're really departing from the faith. And that's why I'm really trying to help us see both sides of this issue today. And again, I think the answer is a high view of Scripture with an understanding of how Christ has fulfilled it. We are called in the New Testament simply to love God and to love others. But as we examine the depths of those two simple commands, we can see that we are actually called to a higher righteousness than Israel could have ever imagined. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to reveal the righteousness that we are called to is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out. This righteousness by the Holy Spirit is also coming to us through obedience to the Scripture. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 19, that that we need to obey the Scripture because it is not abolished. Our obedience isn't necessarily against the 613 commandments that Israel sought to obey, But our obedience is to the spirit of the law. Our obedience is to holiness of life, to to being like Jesus Christ. Paul said that the law is holy and just, or righteous and good, in Romans 7.12. The the, the law, even the Old Testament, reflects the holiness of God. and Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.48 that we are to be perfect As our heavenly father is perfect we're called to a high level of righteousness in the law of christ another way to say this would be that the old testament shows us christ and we are called to be like him now the opposite of relaxing the commandments would be to obey them to implement them to apply god's word to your life And so, brothers and sisters, even if you're struggling this morning to wrap your mind around some of these things, let me ask you this. Are you being obedient? Are you being obedient to God and to His Word? Are you being obedient to what you know you should be doing in your life right now? Are you holding Scripture high? Are you seeking to obey the Word of God? and putting them into practice in your life. That's what Jesus is calling us to in verse 19. Jesus says, whoever does that and teaches that will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does that and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so your obedience to God and His word will be greatly rewarded realize then that, that in your obedience, you are teaching others around you. You are, you are having an influence to the world around you, and you're either teaching them to honor the Word of God and regard it highly, or you're teaching those around you that it's not that important. The other way that I really apply this text is to think about this, how we are being taught is very, very important in our spiritual lives. If you are being taught to to view the Word of God in a low way, that it's not a big deal to disobey Him, that you can kind of do whatever you want and pick and choose what what you want to follow and what you want to obey, then then that is a a low view of Scripture that's going to lead you to loss of reward in the Kingdom of Heaven. And so we need to be those who do and teach the law, to, to do and teach the Word of God, and we need to be taught the Word of God from somebody who, and, and from a people who view the Word of God highly and are seeking to obey it and follow what it says, because to not do that, to be influenced, to view the Word of God low, and, and, and to really spitefully regard the Word of God, that's going to influence us and affect our reward in the Kingdom of Heaven. And so how we respond to Scripture is so important. Because Jesus wants His disciples then, in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's number four then. The scriptures must lead to surpassing righteousness, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, what you think about scripture is going to have a tremendous impact on how you live. That's why in verse 20 it begins with the word for. For explains why we must be those who do what God commands and teach others to do the same. Because unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says we will never enter the kingdom. It's not even the loss of the Lord here. We won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is another emphatic negative in the Greek. This is the strongest way to say something won't happen. And Jesus says, you will never enter, there is no chance of you entering the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness is not greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now this would have been shocking to Jesus' disciples. So those who have heard him that day, the scribes and the Pharisees were committed to obeying the law right down to tithing piece of mint that they picked up off the ground. They picked up a piece of loose mint off the ground they thought, they cut 10% of that off to make sure I tie that. But their obedience was external. It was a, a cold ritualism. It wasn't a love for God from the heart. It wasn't the kind of an internal righteousness that Jesus has been telling us about and that He will tell us about as we work through this sermon. And so friends, this is serious. Jesus in this verse isn't talking about imputed righteousness, he's talking about the holiness of life that comes from faith in him. And this righteousness that, that we have, it begins with the right thinking on God's word. I call this sermon, I think, right thinking for righteousness, because that's what Jesus to righteous living. And such a one who has right thinking about righteousness, such a one who has right thinking about the Word of God, they come to see Jesus as the one who fulfills the Scriptures. He or she sees Jesus as the Savior, as the one who forgives sins. Such a one sees Jesus as Lord. He or she wants to follow Jesus. This person wants to obey His words. This person wants to walk after Jesus. Right thinking on the Word leads then to an obedience that leads to righteousness. It starts with the right view of salvation and, and being genuinely born again, and then it leads to obedience to God and His Word that leads to a righteous and a holy lifestyle. Now, it's not as though this righteousness is the reason that someone gets into heaven. Our righteousness, what we can do, could never be enough to earn us eternal life. Instead, eternal life through faith in Christ is going to produce this transformation that results in righteousness. This starts with believing in Jesus Christ, being born again, and then the, the fruit of that will be a righteous and a holy lifestyle. And if you don't have that righteousness, you will never enter the Kingdom of Heaven. And so the way that to getting this salvation, the way that to begin in this righteousness is first by believing what god says about jesus christ that he is both god and man and that he died for our sin and that he lived as our representatives to earn a righteousness that can be imputed to us and then you must believe what god says about you that you are a sinner that you are born in sin that you are guilty before a holy god and that you deserve the penalty of death hell for your sins that you deserve to die because of your sin and then you must believe what God says about God that he is holy but so the only way that God can forgive your sin is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and then you must believe what God says that you should do and that is that you must repent and believe in the gospel and when you have that right view of salvation and you have trusted in Jesus Christ for this salvation then you will be transformed internally. And you will be a different person. You will be, like you said at the beginning, you will be born again. And then from there, we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we obey what God says in name, And We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We become righteous in our practical, day-to-day lives. And through that righteousness, we glorify God. And we can have assurance that we will certainly enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would help us to understand this because we never want to commit this sin of relaxing one of the least of your commandments. At the same time, we want to recognize all that Christ has accomplished for us. And for our salvation, we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill the law on our behalf. And we pray that we would be obedient to you, that you would help us in any area of our life where we're struggling to obey you. We pray that you would transform us by your grace. We hunger and thirst for that righteousness, Lord. We want to glorify you by our lives. And we pray that you would do that gracious work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.